Okay. All right. And well, I I didn't have a pre-planned joke, but I better give you this one. Yeah. Okay. It's like you know, did you hear about that cow that just wouldn't listen? Went one out one ear and out the other. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Right there you go. Right off the top of my head. <laughs> there you go. That's a dairy farm joke. All right. Okay. To the uh, name of our study today is going to be a study of biblical Hebrew weddings. And um, I started this study because of a comment from Sherry, oh, a while back, a year, I don't know how long ago. And it was like, you know, understanding the fullness of what that parable about the ten virgins was. So I began to look at that. And um, when I did, it just led me down uh, a path that was not quite where I thought it was going to lead, okay? Always that's the way it is. <laughs> okay, this study's going to lay out groundwork uh, so that we can understand more later. And uh, I'm going to try to refrain from paralleling the New and the Old Testaments too much just because we're going to be looking at that further later. Uh, we're going to look at Hebrew weddings, the, he the history, and how that fits into our biblical understanding of Scripture. So um, this is going to be foundational, and we're going to be talking about marriage rules and the customs, and then later we're going to look closer into how that fits in with Scripture references. And I think we'll be able to see how uh, Jesus fits in it all. If we understand how things were done back then, we're going to see the applications in Scripture everywhere. And it's always also going to help us in regard to prophecy. This should help us expand our knowledge, help us to pick up on meanings that we might otherwise miss. And uh, this should give us a more intimate understanding of God and Jesus and their roles. Uh, we, the church, are called the bride. And I think this is going to give us a fuller uh, uh, picture of what that means. There are several stages of a Jewish wedding. And in our modern day, the wedding, you know, centers around the big day. You know, there's one big day and that's considered the wedding. But in the Hebrew mindset, what was the most important was in the very beginning. Okay, the actual wedding date was just the fulfillment yeah. of what had already happened before. Okay. I'm going to try not to butcher the Hebrew pronunciations of this. I apologize in advance, uh, you know, with the Eastern New Mexico, West Texas accent. I, I know I'm not going to get that right. And I went ahead and I meant to already do this, but I didn't. If I'd stand up right here and do it, we will get her, get her going. Okay, so this is going to help um, for anyone that can understand my pronunciations and would like to do a little bit more um, <clears throat> homework. Then at least you'll have uh, some pr right pronunciation and right spelling, okay? So first we have the Shaduchum. Shaduchum? <laughs> yeah, I know there's that. You know, that little hacky sound that the Hebrews, and I never get that right. Okay, 
Basically, what that says, it's the matchmaking stage. Okay, and, you know, uh, Barbara Streisand was in a, some matchmaker movie. I don't remember what it is, but it was all about this was a stage where the the two parties could go and say, we need somebody suitable, and she would uh, get them all together. Like I said, I can't remember what the name of the movie was. It was on the Fiddler on the Roof. It was one, but... The matchmaker. Yeah, but this one, I was that thinking... That song came from... That was... Yeah, the matchmaker, yeah. matchmaker, make me match, yep. Okay, the second was the Ersum, and this was the betrothal stage. This would have been what we call an engagement, but they were what we call and what it, they uh, had was actually really different. And then the third is called the Nishum. Okay, uh, and that was the marriage itself. So each stage had certain ceremonies and practices associated with it. Once we know them, we'll see hints throughout the scripture. So let's look at each stage closer. The Shadushim, okay, right here. Um, God says in Genesis 2.18, he said it's not good for man to be alone, and he will make a helpmeet for him. Here we see that God, it is God that decided to choose the bride for Adam. Shaduchim refers to all the preliminary arrangements prior to a legal betrothal. In ancient times, marriage was looked at more as an alliance. It might have had survival reasons, or it was, might be simply practical. Uh, king's children might marry children of other kings for political reasons. You know, we, we've seen that uh, when we studied Solomon that uh, he had several uh, marriages of alliance and po for political uh, reasons. The concept of romantic love was a secondary issue, if it was even considered at all. And it was felt that romantic love would grow over time. You know, we know there's still countries that do that. It was generally the fathers who did the deliberating at this stage. The father of the bride and the father of the groom, along with the groom, would decide what the conditions would be. It was common for children to be betrothed to each other. This meant that they would have been legally together, but unconsummated. However, it was seldom that marriages were forced on young people that had no interest in each other. If they didn't like each other, they're usually not made to marry. During a young person's betrothal, if one was too young, the other would have to wait until the young one grew to the legal age. In ultra-Orthodox Judaism today, many marriages are still arranged. Samson is one <coughs> example. Okay, we'll look at Judges 14, 1 through 5. Now Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. So he went up and told his mother and father, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore, get her for me as a wife. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must just go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. 
But his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. For at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. So Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. Okay? Here we see that Samson was wanting his father to go and negotiate a wife for him. In verses 4 and 5, we see at this stage the formal proposal was made, which began the process of setting the terms for marriage if the proposal was uh, accepted. Okay? And then this next stage, this Ursum. Ursum? Ursum. <laughs> The betrothal stage. And this had several components. Once the match had been made, it was in the, the type of contract which was called the ketubah. For some reason, I can pronounce that all right. A ketubah. <laughs> it was legally binding. It was actually like a contract. Its primary purpose was to protect the bride. The father of the bride would use his wisdom to look out for the best interests of his daughter. So he was actually responsible for what happened to his daughter. The bride was seen as being completely under the father's control. For example, if a man slept with a virgin, they generally got married, but her father still had to consent. And we see that in Exodus 22, 16 and 17. I'm reading this out of the New International Version. If a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must play, pay the bride price, and she shall be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must still pay the bride price for a virgin. Okay, we can see that fornication was costly for the man in those days. Okay, you could end up paying the 50 shekel bride price, and you might still not have a woman at the end of it all. The ketubah consisted of several stipulations, okay? There were the conditions and requirements of the groom and the bride to each other. Okay, we, were, we would call that the vows in our modern day, except they went into much more detail. Instead of generally saying, oh, I love you, they would say, um, the, the groom might say, well, I promise to provide for you. I promise to protect you. I promise to try to give you children, um, etc." And then on the flip side, the wife might say, um, you know, I'll serve you. I will be the mother. I'll tend to the duties. You know, she would lay out exactly what she, the intentions and what she was, and her promises. Okay? The, the second thing that it consists of was the bride's estate inventory. And that would be listed in the contract. There's an accounting of her assets, which would be cash, property, uh, livestock, maybe any businesses that she was a part of or had started herself. Uh, and this was things that the bride contributed to the new husband's estate when she married him. In other words, this is the first prenuptial agreement. Okay? We're going to see later why that's important. Next, the bride price. This was usually set at 50 shekels of silver, and there was a cash penalty for divorce without cause. I, I think your note says with cause, so put it a little out there. <clears throat> An example might be uh, taking a second wife without the consent and permission of the bride or, and her father. Okay, 
In other words, there is no second woman unless the bride's, the first wife says, okay, I'm good that, and the husband says, uh, the father says, yeah, that's, that's okay. All right, so we see there that there's, uh, if you wanted to have a second wife, you had to jump through a hoop or two. Okay, in Deuteronomy 22, 28, 29, it says, If a man finds a young woman who is a virgin, who is not betrothed, and he seizes her and lies with her, and they're found out, then the man who lay with her shall give to the young woman's father 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has humbled her. He shall not be permitted to divorce her all his days. Okay, mostly it was only royalty or extremely rich men that could afford to do this. Okay? You didn't just willy-nilly going around sleeping around like they do now because it was, it was costly. And the dowry, and this is going to be the mohar, was the price of the bride paid by the groom or the groom's father to the bride's father. This was all written in the contract. In those days, marriage was not just between two individuals like it is now, but it was between two families. Okay? The newly married man usually did not find a home for himself, but he occupied a portion of his father's house. Yeah. So they would expand the family home. So the family of the groom gained, and the family of the bride lost a valuable member who helped with all the household tasks. And we remember, and we can just think about those days, how many tasks there were to do. You know, now we have servants called Maytag and Whirlpool. But in those <laughs> days, <laughs> you know, the grain had to be sifted, crushed, uh, the water was hauled, uh, wood was cut, and then used to heat, you know, the whole nine yards. It was very labor-intensive. So it was reasonable that the father of the bride receive the equivalent of her value as a useful member of the family. Um, and it wasn't, you know, you've heard people say, oh, yeah, that objectifies the woman. But no, really, it put a value on her. It was saying, you know, we know she's valuable, and we want to help offset uh, what you're going to be missing with her not being in your household. Okay, does that make any sense to anybody? Yep. It was more about honoring the family that sacrificed to give her up. In the course of time, the dowry became more like a gift to the bride's relatives. In biblical times, it was customary to give all the mohair and at least a large part of it to the daughter. This would have become the bridal inventory. A father who appropriated the home mohar for himself was considered harsh and unkind. There are examples of God <clears throat> giving back to the bride what he had been given. We see this in the book of Numbers. In Numbers 18.21 it says, Behold, I have given the children of Levi all the tithes in Israel as an inheritance in return for the work which they perform, the work of the tabernacle of meeting. And that's just one example. There's different times that he says, you know, I'm going to give this, uh, you know, the tithes, give it to me, and I'll give back more kind of thing. Um, so on top of the mohar, the groom would give costly gifts, and that was going to be 
the matan. And the matan was given to the bride as a sign of the groom's commitment and as a sign of his promise to return for her. The matan was usually given after the signing of the ketubah contract. So we, first we would sit down, have the contract, and then as a, they're going to give gifts. We'll see that the two, the bride and the groom, would usually spend about a, a year apart after they signed the ketubah. Okay. They wouldn't see each other. The matan was his way of saying, don't forget me, I'm coming back for you. Let's look at where we see both the matan, the gifts, and the mohar, the dowry, in scripture. This is the story of Dina being taken by Shechel. In Genesis 34, 11, 12, then Shechem said to Dina's father and mother's, father and mother's, father and brother's, let me find favor in your eyes, and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and the gift I am to bring as great as you like, and I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the young woman as my wife. Okay? So all the stipulations had been agreed on, and we remember what happened. Now, one of their stipulations was get everybody circumcised. Okay? We we won't keep continue about after that, but uh, that was one of the, the stipulations that the bride's family would have had. Okay, So once all the stipulations have been agreed on, the actual proceedings for the betrothal could proceed. Then the groom and his father would go to the bride's father's house, and they would knock on the door. At this point, the bride still had a decision. She could still back out, okay? The bride's decision would then be made known by whether the door was opened or not. Okay? Does this remind you of the passage in Revelation 3.20? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him. I will sup with him and he with me. I never realized this was part of the wedding process. You know, we always think, it, you know, the door of your heart and he's right. knocking. But it's, it's actually... Come and be my bride. Okay. And she has to say yes or no, but pretty much. Answer the door, she doesn't answer the door. It's talking about it, the invitation for trouble. If the door opened, the groom and his father would share a covenantal meal with the bride and her family, and then they would partake of bread and wine. Communion. Communion. Yeah, we did. So that would be the first probably communion would have been maybe in the wedding process, okay? This was a private thing. They're coming in, they're doing this, this is private. Later there's going to be a public ceremony, okay? In the public ceremony, the bride and the groom first, before they did anything, would undergo a mikvah, okay, right here. The mikvah to prepare <clears throat> for the ceremony and a uh, mikvah was a ritual bath and used for the purpose of immersion to achieve ritual purity. Uh, usually they were set outside the temples and so, and they would go in and uh, immerse themselves. Afterwards, they would stand under, okay, right here, a hoopah. It's not a chupa like I kept trying to say. <laughs> uh, by the way, there is a little... Uh, 
site how to pronounce and you can go and then you hit and they will actually say it for you and it's like oh that was quite helpful <laughs> so the hoopa which is a canopy okay and the uh, they would stand under that and then the groom would give a hatan to the bride okay here's the hatan the hatan was the promise to return for her okay this was also the time that he would give her gifts uh, and we look at Ephesians, we're going to see that Christ gave gifts to men, to us. And Ephesians 4 and 11 and 12, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, and for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Then the ketubah is actually signed then. There would be three copies of the ketubah. Okay, the first one went to the father of the bride. The second one is for the married couple's personal, that they would have their own personal copy. And then the third was a sealed copy for the local judicial court. Okay, that remained sealed, and only a judge could break the seal and open it. Okay. I don't even have time to go into judges and seals, but I think, you know, you just go automatically yeah. into Revelation. Right. And, and so... Who's able to open the seals. Right. Who is able to open the seals, and once the seals are opened, and so yeah. anyway, uh, I'm not even going to get into that because then we're going to go somewhere completely <laughs> different than why we're, we're going to do some background here. <clears throat> once the ketubah was signed, the bride and the groom were legally married and betrothed each other. Okay, right then, it's legal. Consummation and the residing with each other hadn't occurred at this point yet. Everything's legal, but it's unconsummated. At this point, the groom goes back to his father's house, and he prepares a place for himself and his bride to live. During this time, the bride would learn all about the groom, you know, what he likes, what he dislikes, and how to be a a pleasant, pleasing wife. She would also prepare her wedding garments in, in preparation for the wedding. During, during the betrothal period, the bride and groom would not eat, see each other for a year or so. However, messages were usually passed between the two by, a friend, by the friend of the groom. Okay? And if we look at this spiritually, if the groom is Jesus and he's preparing a place, then who's the friend? It's the Holy Spirit. Okay. I thought that was a one of the customs. It was like, oh, oh, that just gets you excited there. Okay, so the Holy Spirit at this point is the, the friend of the groom. Okay. And he's the, he's the go-between. He's passing the messages. We're praying, and he's taking it to Jesus, and Jesus is telling him, and he's bringing it back to us. Okay. I thought that was just coolness. Okay. <laughs> so now we have the marriage, and I, but I want to look at uh, divorce. We're going to look at the flip side, which is divorce. And it's important to know that even during the betrothal period, then a divorce certificate was required to annul the covenant. They didn't even have to wait till the consummation of the marriage to for the divorce decree uh, divorce certificate to be required. 
if the groom divorced his wife without cause or committed adultery, not only would he have to pay the bride price, but he would also have to return the entire bride's estate inventory. This is where the idea of putting away comes from. When the man put his wife away without divorcing her, he meant, it just meant that he could keep all the assets. This could really just be an underhanded move. It could just be devious. He would just send his wife away, and because there was no divorce certificate, you know, because it wasn't legal, he'd keep everything. And that's what we see that Jesus spoke against. In Matthew 5 and then 31, <clears throat> it says, Whoever puts away his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever puts away his wife, except for the matter of whoring, makes her commit adultery. And why would that be? Because really she's still married. In Matthew 19 and 3 through 5, it says, The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh, Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay, what's interesting is that divorce was actually considered a form of murder. When you have two that are joined together, and then you take and you split them in, you know, apart, then we have death. And so that was why it was very serious, and that's why there was a death penalty attached to it. In Matthew 19, 7 through 9, said, They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give us certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her is who is divorced, commits adultery. All right. So, that there was some, several rules that just <coughs> was laid out here for this. And this tied in with Deuteronomy 24.1. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanliness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and he sends her out of the house. Okay, Jesus goes back from what he said in Matthew, and he refers back to the Torah. The problem in this time was that men were sending women away without a certificate of divorce. Okay, this put the woman in a bad situation. Okay, and she also was publicly shamed. And because she was shamed, then her father's house was shamed. Okay, and this... Next is Malachi 2, 13, 16. I'm reading the New International Version. And if I haven't said uh, on these others, it's the uh, King James Version. An, a 13, another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hand. And you ask why. 
It's because the Lord is a witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has she has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Okay, so that brings us then. We've had the divorce. We're talking about the divorce. And then the third stage is going to be that nishum. The word here means to take. And that comes from the, uh, the root word nano, which means to lift up. Okay? You take the bride and you're going to lift her up. That's what I kind of get out of that. All right? Is it? And I wondered, and I didn't have time to go and look. Do you think that's why they, you yeah. know, the groom lifts the bride up, mm -hmm. you know, and takes uh, her to the, you know, mm -hmm. if that's part of that tradition there. And I know... Um, not us so much, but back in English days, you know, they had a lot of the deal with the dowry and, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, and the giftings and stuff like that. And um, so we see that a lot of traditions, uh, even that aren't uh, Hebraic or Jewish, uh, I think have taken a lot of their traditions from them. Mm -hmm. Because I do believe that the, the dowries, like I said, and uh, some of our... Um, words and some of our customs that we have have come from these. Um, so not only would the groom come to take his bride, he would honor her and lift her up. When the groom came for the bride, there was a great procession of joy, jubilation, and the shofar's blasting. You can just imagine, it's the groom is coming, the groom is coming. They've been waiting and waiting. That excitement's been building. That anticipation's been building. And here he is. The chauffeur's going off and the groom is coming. Okay. The procession would usually happen in the middle of the night. The bride would hear the noise, see the light in the, in the night, and she would go out and meet the groom as he came for her. And I don't know, we, when we, during worship, I played that Song of Solomon, when you come running, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, I, I just like that visual of that song. With It's a Song of Solomon for everybody that wasn't here for worship. <clears throat> so how would the bride see to make her way out? You know, no floodlights like we have now, no, no outside electric lights. She'd use a lamp. Okay, she would need a lamp to be able to see where she was going. She would light her oil lamp and go out to meet him. Although the bride knew to expect her groom after about a year, she did not know the exact day or hour. It was the father of the groom who gave the final approval to the groom to return to collect the bride. The son couldn't just randomly decide the date. Okay, The father had to decide the son was ready and that he had everything prepared for the bride. Okay? We see that. We see that. Uh, you know, it says that no man knows the day and the time. And uh, 
got yeah, except the father. He's the only one that knows, and so and I think that's right where this comes from. Is he, he doesn't know? He hasn't told the son, or the son would let us know. You know right. that kind of thing. Okay. I said there's a lot of connections to you. Uh, when you read through in some of this stuff, mm -hmm. little little yeah. things just yeah. keep going clicking off, and I had to just say I can't put all those in, <laughs> <laughs> or we will be here for like, till tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for that reason, the bride kept her oil lamps ready at all times. The groom usually came at night. The groom would then take his bride, take her back to her father's house to consummate and celebrate. The couple would finalize their vows and drink a cup of wine to signify their union. So there was another covenant meal at the betrothal, and now here's another one at the consummation. And I'm thinking wedding feast, you know. Yeah. So let's look a little bit more at the consummation. Of course, we're not going to get into any de too much details. But there was more to it than simply sexual fulfillment. The consummation, again, followed a customary procedure. The bride might have up to <coughs> ten friends who would act as witnesses to the event. Okay, does that sound Whoa. familiar? Mm -mm. Ten yeah. friends, ten friends with oil lamps here. Okay? <laughs> the mother of the bride, or the bride herself, would sew the name of the couple on a cloth. This was called the proof of virginity. This cloth is what the, the bride would lay on as... as the consummation, the copulation was going on, both the groom and the bride would assign several formal witnesses to the event. Okay, here she, uh, this, this is all going on during the ceremony. I'm like, you know. <laughs> yeah. They would, okay, so here we got, we got all these witnesses, okay? They would wait outside or in an adjoining room while the couple consummated the marriage in well, the wedding bed. <laughs> yeah, get that little picture. Okay, this is where the phrase, the wedding party, comes from. And how many witnesses did the groom have? He had two. Does that sound familiar? Two witnesses, okay? This is the, where the parable of the ten virgins comes in, okay? So let's look closer. The bride's ten virgins served as witnesses, as her witnesses, and will walk with the bride in a ceremony to the wedding feast in the house of the groom. That's where the wedding feast was occurring. The bride would have had these ten on standby, okay, to be ready for the arrival of the groom. In the parable, we know as the bride was waiting for the groom to arrive, take her to his father's house, the ten fell asleep due to the unexpected delay of the groom. You know, maybe it rained. Maybe he didn't quite get the roof finished. Maybe, you know, we don't really know what. It could be many things that could delay. But once the groom arrives, the two male witnesses of the groom would announce his arrival with the shofar, and then there would be, um, from the groom's own voice, there would be, uh, he would call out to the to the bride and her maidens, "I'm here! I'm here!" You know, um, so that you could just uh, that's just an anticipation. You know, we're going out, we're we're celebrating, we've got all these things going on. 
One of these two witnesses would have been the friend of the groom who relayed the messages between uh, during this year of betrothal, okay? And I think knowing that and how this is all set up, go back and read the Song of Solomon again because it's, you know, we're, it's this anticipation and the, you know, and the calling out and et cetera. At this point, the wedding party trimmed their lamps, which would have been burning, and the wise virgins had extra oil because of the delay. As the groom takes the bride to the hoopa room, see, a celebration party begins in the outside, and the five foolish virgins, they have to run to buy extra oil. Okay? The entire wedding party made their way to the groom's house. The doors closed when the last person in the procession enters. So it's like a parade. They're all together. And here we come, and we're probably singing, and we're singing, and we're laughing, and we're playing the shofar, and we're, you know, it's a, just a really celebration. When that last person goes, they shut the door. And then back then, they used to lock the door afterwards. I don't know if you would have stragglers that would come to try to party crasher, the wedding crashers. So this is where the five foolish virgins, uh, you know, they arrive, they knock on the closed door, and then they're told, I don't know you. And they're forbidden to enter the wedding feast. You know, remember, this is the groom's home, and his household <coughs> would not have known these five uh, okay. women. And uh, so, you know, we have to know what it means to know him mm -hmm. intimately. Because uh, many people are going to claim to know him, and they really don't have actual knowledge of him. Uh, so, then the, the hoopah, which was used in the betrothal ceremony, was used as a covering for the marriage bed. Did anybody except me not know this? <laughs> I did not know this. And uh, there's speculation, I didn't put that on there, but there's speculation that that symbolized the covering of the Lord like the glory that covered the, the bride and the groom, okay? They said there's a little bit of a, uh, I, I will say blank space in the understanding of why they did that. But that's uh, some speculation there. <clears throat> okay, once the marriage was consummated, the groom would hand the proof of virginity to the witnesses and the celebration would begin. Okay, remember this is the cloth the bride had bled on it's to prove that she had was a virgin so there's a lot riding on this you know nope. no pressure whatsoever for the couple you know <laughs> here you that you know isn't it maybe there's a lot gotta be a little distraction with party going on and you're oh, yeah. you're getting to know really uh after one year you're getting to to reacquaint you know uh <laughs> yeah, she messed around. <laughs> Great importance was put on the virginity of the bride. Yeah. If she wasn't found a virgin, then what happened? Uh -oh. She could be stoned. So as you can imagine, when the groom came out with, here it is, okay, here's the evidence, there was a lot of joy and relief, okay? The witnesses were there for the specific job of confirming the bride's virginity. Both sets of parents wanted to know. All right, in Deuteronomy 22, 13 through 19, it says, If any man take a wife and go in to her and hate her and give occasions of speech against her and bring up an evil name upon her and say, I took this woman 
And when I came to her, I found her not a maid. Then shall the father of the damsel and her mother take and bring forth the tokens of the damsel's virginity unto the elders of the city of the, in the gate. And the damsel's father shall say unto the elders, I gave my daughter to this man, and he hateth her. And lo, he hath given occasions of speech against her, saying, I found not thy daughter a maid. And yet, these are the tokens of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city. And the elders of that city shall take that man and chastise him. And they shall immerse. And I, I left that word in because that word means punish with a fine whose amount was fixed by the court. I had to look that up. I did wow. not know what that meant. I'm like, what does that mean? A-M-E-R-C-E. -E. Immerse him in a hundred shekels of silver and give them unto the father of the damsel because he hath brought up an evil name upon a virgin of Israel and she shall be his wife and he shall not put away all his days. This was a matter of honor and shame. This was protection for the woman. But, and you know, right, quite frankly right here, I'm going to say, when Satan blasphemies the church, I think he's going to have to be held accountable. Okay, there's going to be reckoning uh, because he has spoken against mm -hmm. the bride of Christ. Okay? But, and verse 20, but if this thing be true and the tokens of virginity be not found for the damsel, then they shall bring out the damsel to the door of her father's house and the men of her city shall stone her with stones that she die because she hath wrought folly in Israel to play the whore in her father's house so that there shall be evil so thou shalt put evil away from among you. Okay, so we see severe consequences were applied to those in adultery. Remember that if the bride was found guilty of adultery, she was going to lose everything, and perhaps even her life. And the groom is going to keep all the bridal inventory, okay? And I want to look at that 50 shekels uh, and how that looks at today's money. Okay, the bride price was 50 shekels. The cost of a false accusation of harlotry was 100 shekels. The exchange rate in modern terms, okay, one denarius is the same as a silver dime in, in our money in the United States. That was considered a day's wage. Okay, it took four denariuses to equal an, one ounce of silver. A shekel was a 0 0.4 tenths of an ounce. Five shekels would be two ounces. So 50 shekels would e equal 280 days worth of wages or nine to 10 months of your wow. whole entire, you know, say, uh, wow. wages. And you think about it, then a, a hundred would take you uh, a year, about, about a year and a half to pay off then. So it was a significant amount wow. You know that in today, we'll just say in today's if you're making uh, you know twenty. Let's just pull one out that's easy for me to figure twenty thousand dollars. It's going to take you know like seventeen thousand of that to put, to pay the fifty shekels. And then if I accused her wrong, it's going to take like thirty thousand dollars to go ahead and pay off that hundred uh, shekels for the bride price and the right. accusation. So it was um, significantly expensive yeah. Yeah. okay 
Um, and that's why, then when we look at the proof of virginity, and it was presented, there was great joy, and the celebrations could begin. Uh, if we look at John 3, 29, it says, He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoice greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This is my joy, therefore is fulfilled. Okay, I always thought that this was just anybody that was the friend of the bridegroom. Hey, they were all going to be happy for him. But we're looking right here, then you're more likely to say, hey, you know, I think that's the Holy Spirit, you know, is rejoicing. Of course, we know what Holy Spirit's in us. Okay, now uh, I'm going to look a little bit at Mary and Joseph's story. You know, they were the parents of Jesus. And we're going to look at it in this light of what we've just learned. In Matthew 1, 18 through 25, 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. So here we see that they were betrothed, but she had become pregnant before this consummation. Okay? Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Okay. At this point, he had grounds for divorce. But he was going to do this secretly so as not to shame Mary. We see that he had already taken her as a wife. They had already exchanged the vows during this betrothal. The, the ketubah, you know, they are, they've already done this. Um, but the two had not consummated the marriage. So we can see that there was probably whispers about Mary. Okay? Mary was in a very vulnerable position at this point and at the mercy of Joseph. She was pregnant before the hoopah and had no virginity cloth. Can we clean Got a sneeze? I don't know if it's going to come or not. Joseph did not want to disgrace her, even though he believed she was an adulteress. What else would you think? In 20, we're going to read in 20. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in dreams, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Okay, we see here, Joseph planned on divorcing her secretly by just merely handing her a, a divorce certificate without making an accusation of adultery. That meant that Joseph would have been required to return the bridal assets and pay the bride price to her father. So this is going to cost him some, some dough, okay? 
He had legal grounds to accuse her and to keep all the assets and not have to pay the bride price. Joseph had everything to gain by going ahead and accusing her openly, but would have cost him much to divorce her secretly. I think this... I have a lot more respect for Joseph than I already did before because he had intended on really doing uh, a costly thing, and but it was an honorable thing that he felt he wanted to protect Mary. Okay? Okay, so we see here, now we're going to talk about the Nisuim. Uh, once that marriage has been, we're off of Joseph and Mary now, <laughs> just in case you're, well, switch gears here for a minute. Okay. So once the marriage then in the Jewish uh, Hebraic wedding had been consummated, okay, there's a huge celebration that usually lasted seven days. These celebrations usually happened after the harvest when there was plenty of fruit, wine, and a celebratory spirit. Also, this would have been the time of the year when most of the hard work was done. Okay? The, the plant, you know, yeah. everything had been sown uh, and reaped, etc. And uh, so it was a relatively uh, inactive time in those days. And remember, the celebration happened at the groom's place, which he had prepared at his father's house. And we just remember, keep remembering that Jesus said, I go to prepare yes. a place for you. He doesn't even know when he's going to be here. No. He's waiting for Jesus. Father to tell him. Right. Okay, it's time. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hopefully, y'all got something out yeah, of that. Well, I thought about that clause to verify hmm? your virginity. Now, if we don't have the blood of Jesus over us, we have a problem. Mm -hmm. But we have the blood of Jesus over us. Now we're okay. Mm -hmm. got now we're all right. Yep. So yep. we really are part of the we bride. We have proof. So if that blood is not here, right. we're not part of the bride. Right? That's the 